0: You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K.
1: Honestly, a lot of security programs are trying to fight against just straight up evolution, and it's kind of like looking into the sun. You're never going to win that fight.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Got some good stories to share this week. And later in the show, we've got Kelly Shortridge from Fastly. I caught up with her recently at the RSA conference. And she's teaching us all about behavioral economics in cybersecurity. All right, Joe, we've got some uh, good stories this week. Why don't you kick things off for us?
0: Dave, my story comes out of Indiana. Mm -hmm. I think it's Indiana.
2: Indiana wants me. Lord,
0: I can't go back there. This comes from Paige Barnes at WSBT. And it is a story about a package scam. And hmm. police are issuing a warning about this, quote, new package scam hitting the area. Now, I'm going to go into this. It's not really a new package scam. Okay. But there is a new and brazen twist to it. Oh. So here's what's happening. Uh, the Elkhart Police Department says that a package is delivered to you that you never ordered. Hmm. Right? These packages will look like they're for you. They'll say Dave Bittner on them. Okay. Dave Bittner from who lives in Indiana. Right. And you pick the package up. You take it into your house. And then what happens? Somebody knocks on the door, and they say, "Uh, I just got a notification that my package was delivered here for some reason. Hmm. Uh, And they're trying to get this package, you to give them this package. Hmm. And if you give them the package, they say, hey, thanks, and they walk away. And then you will be billed for whatever it was. Now, in this case, it was a $1,500 iPhone 13 Pro Max from AT&T. So what had happened was these folks – these bad guys got these fine upstanding people their their <laughs> personal information including probably a credit card okay and sent them or ordered with AT&T a new iPhone and said just bill me later and here's my credit card information so they uh-huh. had a lot of information for them uh-huh and they I am 100% positive the hope was that they would go there and just grab the package off the porch oh I see right but the right. porch Uh, the Porch Pirates got there and saw that it had already been taken inside. Mm -hmm. They arrived within minutes of the package being delivered because they got the notification that the package had arrived.
2: So somehow they've looped themselves into the package tracking. Exactly. We we assume here.
0: Probably from when they uh, set it up because Mm -hmm. they they probably watch that tracking number like a hawk. And they Mm. see when it's out of delivery. You know, FedEx and UPS and even the Postal Service, but not to the same extent that FedEx and UPS will do, will show you where that, that product is on the route. Uh, right. It, that, well, mm-hmm. how many stops? So actually, Amazon will show you how many stops away it is. Right. But right. they will tell you when it's been delivered. Yeah. And, and it's almost you, show instantaneous. You a picture. They'll yeah. show you a picture. Yeah. It's amazing the logistics, the uh, the technology behind the logistics now. But that technology also enables these, uh, these criminals to know when the package has arrived so they can show up, grab the package, and get out of Dodge. Hmm. Okay. But if you're there, and you've already taken the package in, then they will uh, they will knock on the door and ask you for the package. Hmm. Uh, the That's poli- weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is weird. That's really concerning, actually. I don't know what to tell people to do here. The police say don't give them the package. Well, I just think I'm trying to put myself
2: in this situation, and if a package arrived... Addressed to you. Addressed to me. Right. And I presumably, I would open that package probably... Right away. I don't know. Maybe not. Could sit yep. on my kitchen counter for a few hours. Sure. I don't know. But uh, if I opened it up and there was a brand new uh, anything of significant value, first of all, I'd be confused, confused and concerned. <laughs> right. And I'd say I did not order this. Right. Um, I know there uh, now. There's a part of me that would be like woohoo because free is, iPhone. <laughs> well, and there is a rule. Uh, I know with the postal service that if someone delivers something to you that you did not order, you are um, allowed to keep it really yeah yeah i remember when we were kids they were public service uh, announcements they'd run on tv and it was, it was kind of funny because they had like you know a couple of um, of uh, people in alaska getting a new refrigerator delivered to them or something you know it was haha, we don't need this but right <laughs> so um but uh yeah so but but this is more complicated than that because what you're saying is that not only did they have it delivered, but they used my stolen credit card information right. to purchase it. Yes. Huh. So and I wonder, too, is this taking – because we've heard – um, there's lots of scams with uh, – a lot of retailers now have these buy now, pay later uh, yes. things. Yes, you know where, As an option. Yep. I wonder if they're taking advantage of that Probably. with this as well. I would imagine that is a big part of this. Because it delays me getting any kind of notification on my credit card. That I just got billed,
0: yeah, right. now the people on this in this story who wanted to remain anonymous, as they are probably probably should smart to do, I would mm-hmm. say, uh said that they had a credit card charge for fifteen hundred dollars for this for this phone, mm-hmm. they of course, called the credit card company and said, "No, this is not a valid transaction, uh, and our information's been stolen, so I imagine they're getting a new credit card,
2: but the credit card I could see the credit card company saying, hey, look, you you signed off on the, or here's the we also got sent the photo of this being delivered." Right. So,
0: but then you can say, "Here's a police report where somebody showed up at my door looking for this package that right, wasn't me." Right. So, right. Uh, we're going to hmm. we're going to I'm going to send this back, and you're going to take this off my credit card. Yeah. Right now.
2: This is another g- good reason to have something like a ring doorbell. Like yes, a front, I would agree. Front
0: porch camera. Yep. It is another reason. Uh, mm. Just make sure that you're reading the disclosures on that ring doorbell pretty well. Yeah. Because uh, there's a lot of Government involvement, if you will, on those things. Yeah, Well, you can opt out of it. I think. Yeah. Uh, or maybe you have to opt in. I don't know how it works. I, I don't have a ring doorbell. Yeah. But yes, a ring doorbell would do well here. Uh, you know, Dave. Frequently, somebody shows up at my house to deliver a package. They put it on the front door. They ring. They either ring the doorbell. Actually, they don't have to because the dogs go crazy. Right. Right. <laughs> so I know somebody's been there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my office, my home office, sits on the back of the house, so I actually can't see if somebody's dropping a package off, but I generally Mm. know um, by the tone of the dog barks. And I just let him sit out there for a little while Hmm. and frequently go out there. We don't really have a problem with porch pirates in my neighborhood, which is interesting yeah, um, because I know it happens a lot and it would be a great place to be a porch pirate. Yes. um, But we haven't ever had anything taken off our porch.
2: I haven't either. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I haven't either. And, but, but there are plenty of places where it is just rampant. Right. And, and a real problem.
0: You know where it happens? Uh, one of the things, my next door neighbor, uh, actually my next door neighbor is a new next door neighbor, but, uh, we had neighbors that we were kind of close to living next to us for a while. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we live in a town that has a lot of walking trails. Yes. And it's great to be able to walk around the town to get to where you need to go, or you can take your bike or something. Sure. Uh, but you don't have to drive. The town was designed so that you didn't have to drive everywhere. Yes. And the flip side of that is she lived, uh, this family lived on the, and I say she because I was talking to the mom of the family, Mm -hmm. Uh, but they they lived in this house right next to one of those paths. And Mm. she had been broken into once and the police told her being next to this path, you're going to have a higher incidence of break-ins. Houses on the paths have a higher incidence of Mm break-ins, which is interesting, I think. So get a security system if you live near a path.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. So what do we do here, though? I mean, if if these folks are brazen enough to come to your front door, yeah, and I don't know if it were you or me, probably uh, would you hand over
0: the package? I don't know, Dave. That's a really good question. I would assess the person at my front door. Uh, you know, looking at them, is this person going to violently harm me? That's the concern I have because mm-hmm. you're dealing with a criminal. Yeah. This is this always goes back. I always go right back to that Pendulette story about the three card Monty. Yeah. Where he starts taking pictures, and one of the guys in the crowd goes, "Uh, uh-uh, uh." Yeah. Right, because that's he's in on the deal. Mm-hmm. It does this person have another person with them? Usually, porch pirates operate uh, alone, but sometimes they operate in pairs. Uh, yeah. There's actually Mark Rober and a
2: driver. <laughs> right, Mark
0: Rober on YouTube has some great, uh, great videos about how he's penetrated the the porch pirate network, hmm. but. Uh, I don't know, Dave. What, your question is is a good question. What do you do? Uh, that I would say you make a, a an assessment at that point in time when that person's knocking on your door. Mm-hmm. Uh, it might also be good to go. I don't know what you're talking about. We didn't receive any package. Have a nice day.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just that the package is in my name. You right. Know, like if the package was in their name. Yeah, that would make sense. I'd just hand it over. Yes. Oh, because that happens all the time. Sure. Here you are. I I wish you a good day, sir. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) But hmm, at the same time, no phone, no laptop, computer, no whatever is worth a potential physical altercation. Right. If you're standing there with a box in your hand and the person says, you know, give me that box or bad things might happen to you, I'd say, enjoy your box, my friend.
0: Exactly. (laughs) then I'd call the police. Yep. Mm. you're right. This is brazen. It is. It is. It's concerning. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, and, and I don't know what to what to tell listeners. You know, if this happens to you, I think you have to make that decision at that point in time. Yeah. Decide what's going on or just don't answer the door. That's another option as well.
2: The only thing I can think of that might help with something like this is uh, just to make sure that you have alerts set up on your credit cards, mm-hmm. because that way, if anybody charges anything, yeah, you, get a text message. you get a little notice that yeah. says, hey, you know, you just put Ten dollars down on a new iPhone or something, whatever. Right. You what? What's this? I have that set up
0: for (laughs) for a couple of my credit cards, and Mm -hmm. I know when my wife goes to Starbucks.
2: There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. Why is my wife ordering a hundred dollars worth of coffee? Oh, it's it's one (laughs) cup of Starbucks. It's right. right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) One cup Uh, of over roasted, burnt coffee. There
2: you go. All right. Well, we will have a link to that story in the show notes. Uh, My story this week comes from CPO Magazine, uh, and this is uh, written by Scott Aikida, and it's titled, One Million Facebook Credentials Compromised in Four Months by an Ongoing Phishing Campaign. Um, And this is uh, a report, uh, there's a a company called Pixum, P-I-X-M, and uh, they are an anti-phishing platform, and they have been tracking a credential harvesting campaign that's been active since late 2021, uh, that has really been successful in getting people's Facebook credentials. Um so this is not a meta breach? No, this as is not a... I this is people... Giving getting, up their credentials. Giving up their... So this is... What the bad guys are doing is they're setting up a login page that looks just like Facebook. Sure. It's a classic thing. Somebody sends you a link that's... Or a, a, let's just, for argument's sake, someone sends you an SMS message that says... Right. And it's from a friend of yours, right? And it says, hey, Joe, uh, you, uh, are you aware of this video of you? Right. And you're like, whoa, wait, what? Uh-huh. Mm. <laughs> right? I don't
0: know what videos of me might be out there, but.
2: Right. Can't be good. Right. <laughs> might be good. Who knows? <laughs> so you go to the page and it says to view this video, log into your Facebook account. And right. the login looks just like Facebook. You log in. Now they have your login credentials. And, and that's the ball game. Well.
0: Dave, do they have my YubiKey?
2: Well, we'll get to that. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so um, evidently the group who is up to this are escalating their attacks. Uh, the, the folks on, in this report say that uh, they made about two and a half million attempts on Facebook users in 2021 – and that has increased to 8.5 million attempts over a similar period in 2022.
0: 8.5 million attempts. So a total of like 12 million attempts? Yes. And how many records have they compromised? A million?
2: Uh the yeah, according to this report over a million credentials that have been That is a stolen.
0: remarkably high success rate, 1 in 12.
2: Yeah. So, um one of the other things that caught my eye about this was how they're going about it. Uh to to uh, quote the article here, it says The phishing campaign is able to get around automated Facebook security used to recognize when accounts are sending out malicious URLs to contacts. Right. It does this with a link chain that begins with a legitimate app deployment service that then takes the target through several – wait for it, Joe. Redirects. (laughs) Redirects. Right. Before landing on the attack site. So they say they use services like Glitch.me, Famous.co, Amaze.co, and – Something called FunnelPreview.com. And these are all legitimate services that right. are whitelisted on Facebook because if they don't whitelist them, they'll it'll block legitimate stuff happening on Facebook. So they don't want that. Yep. Um, so they're saying that Facebook
0: can block individual links once people report them, but— I have a great idea for Meta. Okay. You got some smart people that work at your company. They do. Start a link shortening service. There you go. Start a link shortening service and insist that anybody using your platform use that link shortening service. And mm-hmm. then validate the links to make sure they're valid. Mm-hmm. You could go a long way with this. Make it free. Make it part of Facebook. Uh, and don't redirect to any other link shortening services. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, they,
2: they make the point that um, – Actually, they talked to uh, – who do they talk to here? Eric Kron, uh, who uh, is a security awareness advocate at no Before. Hey, there you go. We've our had sh- Eric our sh- on the show, haven't we? Yeah, yeah, one of our sponsors. Um, and he makes the point that uh, contacting a human for support at these huge social media organizations <laughs> is nearly impossible. Yes, of course <laughs> it is. Yeah, right. That's the business model. <laughs> right. Um, but uh, there's another interesting point he makes here that I think is really important. He says people often underestimate the value of their social media accounts – Failing to enable multi-factor authentication. Yeah. And I think that's true. People think, oh, well, I better use MFA on my bank account. Right. Something like that. But who's going to be interested in my Facebook account? And what's, a, what's there's nothing of value in there. Well, not so. Especially, you know, we've seen these uh, social media sites. They, they have more and more functionality. They have ways for you to spend money, to collect right. money, and yeah. all those sorts of things. So. Yeah, as
0: meta goes into the metaverse, right? Mm-hmm. This is Somebody asked me this recently. They said, what do you think is going to be the next big thing in social engineering? And I said, this, this metaverse idea, hmm. this idea that we're going to be uh, participating in some large virtual reality uh, environment where there will be real money exchanged for virtual services or mm-hmm. things like that, mm-hmm. uh, that... Is going to be the next big thing, and that is why these guys are probably going. Well, I don't know if that's why they're going after Facebook accounts. Facebook accounts have value to them right now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And if I can overtake, take over rather, a uh, a, a Facebook account of somebody who's an administrator on a page. Yeah. Uh, that has a number of followers. I can start pushing ads out to it, and that's how they monetize this. Yeah. Yeah. One of the ways.
2: Yeah. So uh, the lesson here, uh, be mindful, be careful about these fake uh, login pages, be careful about these lures. You know, if somebody says, hey, was this you in this video? Right. Chances are the, the fact that there's so little information about it is a big red flag. Yep. Um, but also en- enable MFA on your social media accounts. Yep. That, that'll go a long way towards making sure you are not the low-hanging fruit.
0: Absolutely. And, and make sure it's a hardware-based multi-factor authentication. Yeah. Because that will stop it right here, right in the tracks, right in his tracks. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to get around that. In fact, I don't know of a way to do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right.
2: Well, we will have a link to that in the show notes. Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day.
0: Dave, our catch of the day comes from a listener named Will. Uh, there's There's a postscript in this, but it says instead of, PS it says NB. Do you know what that means?
2: I don't. No, I don't know what NB means. I'm sure one of our listeners will let us know. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably I'm not even going to Google it. It's probably I know. local to, to uh you know some part of the country in which we are not. Right. And uh, has meaning. So yeah, let us know if you know what NB means.
0: So this um, is a pretty good one. Why don't you go ahead and read this one and we'll okay. comment
2: after you're done? It goes like this. Uh, good day. We're we're looking for a certain person originally from Asia, Europe, and the United States of America, USA. Sir, if you fit into this description, then you're one of the ones we've been looking for in the past ten months. And please carefully read this mail and, and let me know as soon as possible. We're glad to bring this news to you. IMF, in conjunction with Asian and European Union, met and agreed that a vault office should be used to compensate all scam beneficiaries, and your compensation amount is U.S. $1 million. That's $1 United States dollars only, as you are (laughs) among the persons who is to be compensated as your payment. You are to reconfirm your current contact details, namely full names, full address, and direct telephone number, only so your funds can be processed and paid to you. Waiting for your response urgently, Joan Annone, head IMF European Union coordinator, NB. This mail is a confidential correspondence meant only for the—actually, Joe, this is in all caps, so I'm going to say— This mail is a confidential correspondence meant only for the recipient. If you are not the one, please disregard this communication.
0: So now Will's in trouble with uh, Joan unknown. <laughs> and Joan, by the way, is spelled J-O-N-E. That's a spelling mm-hmm. of Joan I've never seen.
2: Yeah, yeah, and I don't know. I mean, it could be from you know a Scandinavian country. Perhaps it's Jonne or Jone. Jone. who knows, Yone. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but uh, this it might is, actually be a real person. I yeah, don't know. Who knows? Yeah.
0: This is a fantastic scam. My favorite part of this is that it says, we're looking for someone from Asia, Europe, or the United States of America.
2: Really narrowed it down there. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Africans need not apply. Right. Nor South Americans, nor Australians. <laughs> right, right.
0: <laughs> and certainly nobody from Antarctica. No, right.
2: no. Um,
0: <laughs> also, well, it also kind of rules out Canadians and Mexicans as well, right? Uh, yes. It doesn't say North America. It just says United States of America.
2: Yep. Sorry, Canada. Right. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay. Uh, so, you know, Mexico and Canada dodge a bullet here, but, Mm -hmm. uh, oh, this isn't me. I'll just throw it away. Mm -hmm. They certainly encompass the largest populations on the planet. Those being China, India, and the United States. Mm -hmm. So they're going after the big fish here, Dave. Yeah. In terms of people. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a, it's obviously fake the 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 English is all broken up. Nobody randomly finds people via email. That's not how these searches happen. (laughs) You know, I don't, if I'm looking for somebody, I don't just email everybody and go, is this you? Yeah. Can I send you a million bucks? Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. You can send me a million bucks. That should, that should stick out like a, like a sore thumb here to everybody. I mean, this is why our catches of the day tend to be just the most ridiculous scams. Uh, But like we said before, Sometimes they're ridiculous so they weed out people that wouldn't fall for them. Right. Right. They, right. they are actually targeting people who would believe this. Yeah. So yeah. keep listening, All right. everybody.
2: Well, our thanks to Will for sending that in. We would love to hear from you. If you have something you'd like us to consider for the catch of the day, you can send it to hackinghumans at cyberwire.com. All right, Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Kelly Shortridge. She's from an organization called Fastly. Uh, I ran into her at the RSA conference where she was presenting on behavioral economics in cybersecurity. Here's my conversation with Kelly Shortridge.
1: So I have been looking at the intersection of behavioral economics and InfoSec now for uh, at least six years, probably longer. My background is actually in behavioral economics. And when I was first introduced to the information security industry, what struck me was like, huh, it turns out a lot of decision making is pretty inefficient and the market as a whole seems very inefficient. We keep seeing all these kind of unwanted outcomes and then we try similar strategies and it seems like we're almost stuck in the same kind of like thinking loop. So I started to look into, okay, what are some of the biases that are maybe at play? And what's interesting is you see more kind of finger pointing and blame when, you know, user brains go wrong, shall we say, or the user brains don't, operate in what we would call like the secure way or what we consider desirable, but we look less at how decision-making by security leaders and professionals maybe has, have certain quirks to them. So the talk was really to kind of introduce the concept of behavioral economics, explain, you know, what we think is a very pithy way of putting it, which I feel very lucky I got lizard brain to be mentioned in the Wall Street <laughs> Journal. Uh, but I like put about it as, you know, you have lizard brain and then you have velociraptor and they're in this battle. The lizard brain is our default mode of mode of thinking. It's very fast and automatic. It reacts to threats, which, you know, being at RSA, everybody's trying to bombard us with, oh my God, there are threats everywhere. Then you have Velociraptor, which is a bit slower. It's, you know, when you have a complex math problem, you have to expend those brain cycles. The thing is the lizard brain is the default because that's what helps us survive, um, is what has helped us thrive for years and years. We maybe want a little more Velociraptor under decision-making. So the talk is really focused on how as security leaders and practitioners can we start harnessing our philosopher after more and how we can recognize that most people's brains default to lizard brains. So if we're designing security policies and procedures and tools, we need to work with that lizard brain. We need to make sure the secure way is easy, fast, and simple.
2: Well, I mean, let's go through some of the highlights of the presentation. What are some of the, the things that you're pointing out, the actions that people can take to do a better job?
1: Yeah, so the presentation was really diving into how um, the lizard brain and also Philostoraptor manage information security. So uh, there are a few great examples. One is questioning folk wisdom, which is maybe a provocative thing to say at RSA. But for instance, you hear all the time, you know, stock prices are hurt when a breach happens. Well, if you look at the data, that's not necessarily the case. So be aware that uh, this is called availability bias, that just because something is familiar and it's repeated often, that doesn't mean it's true. It just means there's very good marketing. But you can also leverage that to your advantage when you're um, thinking about things like security awareness in your organization or you want to encourage secure behavior. You need to create those pithy messages. You need to make sure they're repeated. You almost need to have this uh, the same sort of principles as like a political slogan or marketing slogan. But we don't always think that way. Again, we present these kind of like very logical, drawn-out arguments for why security matters. But really what people need, they just need like quick advice they can remember. Um, so that's a, that's a simple example of kind of how you can see on each side of the equation this stuff matters.
2: Is there a, a fundamental issue here that uh, the lizard brain takes priority over the, the more rational side of the brain? So it, it, it screams the loudest and the quickest?
1: It does, yes. And uh, this is why it's actually useful, again, to kind of harness the lizard brain almost against itself. So there's a paper I'm actually working on with Josiah Dijkstra, um, which is around opportunity cost, which can be very elaborate. You have to think about, here are all of the alternative options. You know, let's say it's spending six hours of your time. What are all the things you can do with it? Turns out it's a lot. That's way too much thinky-thinky, right? The lizard brain's like, <laughs> I don't I don't want to deal with all that. <laughs> However, you can create this heuristic of like, okay, but what if I did nothing? This becomes very powerful in information security. So consider application security testing, one of those tools use that heuristic, what we call the null baseline. Like, what happens if we did nothing? Maybe you would be releasing software to production faster. Maybe your developers would be less cranky. Maybe that's good for the organization. So you start to kind of uncover these hidden potential benefits or hidden costs of actually pursuing something security-wise and make sure that you're not um, introducing unintended consequences in your organization. Because then lizard brain's like, is the most important. Like, clearly, this is my priority. So, like, everyone else, you know, that doesn't care about security, clearly they're wrong and irrational. And can you believe them? Hmm. But instead, it's almost like you're harnessing uh, this new lizard brain tactic of like, okay, but let me just really quickly consider what if I did none of this instead um, in order to almost trick yourself into being more of a velociraptor.
2: What about the the threat actors the, the the bad folks out there who are intentionally trying to trip the that lizard brain side who are trying to get you into an emotional state and not think rationally how, how do we How do we train people to be aware of that and be able to counter it
1: we don't as a security industry we have to start designing again tools and workflows and procedures that Try to help. We can't expect users to be experts. We can't expect them to have their thinky-thinky hat on all the time, because we don't have it on all the time either. And frankly, if you're looking, most people are dealing with external emails constantly, and now we're saying, okay, 95% of the time when you click on this link from an external sender, it's going to be totally fine. But now you have to slow yourself down and maybe read, you know, 20% fewer emails every day, just for security. They're going to get fired, probably, because they're not going to be as productive. You can't ask them to do that. And training only goes so far. And I think if we were exposed to more training there, side of security ourselves, we would realize like, oh, yeah, I totally forgot that training message at some point. Um, so I think the answer is we don't. And frankly, these attackers are just using the same tricks you see in advertising and marketing. You know, like click now, the sale will end soon, like all of those behavioral tricks to get you to like buy more and buy faster. Right. That's just what attackers are using. So until we get rid of all that, it's almost like whatever training we do is just going to be undone by the general commerce and, you know, Even business emails, how many times have you had your boss say, like, you need to finish this by end of day. You need to, like, click and view this thing and review it for me. An attacker can just leverage that. So you're now saying, like, okay, you got to train something that has to completely override. Again, commerce, business culture, all that. I don't think it's going to work.
2: So uh, to what degree, then, are, are we releasing the users from the responsibility for that oversight, for for taking that extra moment to, to see or consider whether or not that link might be malicious?
1: I think we should look to under in- other industries and ask, how often are we asking our users to have that responsibility in other safety decisions? Look on the airplane. Yes, you're responsible for keeping your seatbelt buckled and all of that, but... That's kind of where it ends, right? And I think that's very similar to like, yeah, you're responsible making sure, let's say like you don't lose your phone. I think that's a very reasonable thing for users. But even as experts, it's so hard for us to like detect like, okay, this site looks pretty legitimate. Is it malicious? Having to go through like the headers and emails and all that metadata, like it's, it's tough even for experts Again, most users, they're either like trying to accomplish something work-wise, they're trying to accomplish something in their personal lives. We can't expect them to be security experts as well. And it really does take expertise in order to kind of understand what's a bamboo or not. So I really think it's, I think we have shoved that responsibility. And I think we've made our jobs easier in some ways. But it's only temporary, and this is the lizard brain at work. It takes that temporary relief of like, okay, we're going to push this complexity onto the users, not realizing like all that burnout we experience all the time from all these incidents, part of that is because we haven't designed our systems with the way real users behave in mind. So it's, yes, in the short term, we've like offloaded some responsibility in the long term. It's part of the reason why we keep seeing like incidents happening and even going up.
2: Can you describe to me what a, an ideal system would look like that would take all of this into consideration?
1: So one of the examples we mentioned in the talk and I think there has been a paper talking about this is um, think about let's say the one of the worst cases of like an application security testing tool it's like you're a developer you've just finished your you know mind blowing feature at least in your mind it's mind blowing <laughs> and you've submitted a pull request and you're like yes victory but now you have to leave your command line. You have to now open up your browser. You have to click and log into like a security portal for this tool. You have to initiate the scan on your code. You have to wait four or six hours, maybe more, in order to get results of the scan. You have to decipher what those results mean. You have to find exactly where to fix in the code. It's a nightmare. Imagine, though, that whole scanning process was in your IDE. It just looks at the diff of like, okay, you're just changing this part of the code. Let me just run the analysis in the background to see like while you're working on other changes. Now it's, it's in your context where you're working. It hopefully is providing immediate feedback for you. Like exactly, here's where you need to fix and here's why. It takes a lot more upfront effort instead of just saying like, okay, developer, go do this later, but think about the the quality results. And I believe that paper found that, um, I can't remember the exact percentage, but there was a, quite a huge leap in the number of fixes that developers actually made. I think it'd be the same thing in reverse, right? You know, if security person was building a tool and they had to go completely out of their way in order, you know, write code and then when there was, you know, a compilation error, there was like no meaningful feedback. We'd hate it. We'd be like, why were the developers doing that to us? Right, right. So I think it's no wonder that they kind of push back. So I think that's a good example of like, we need to be in the workflows um, of these people. We need to think about how they're thinking. We need to, again, we have to make it easy, fast, and simple. That does require more upfront effort from us, but I think we as an industry kind of need to be doing that more.
2: Are there organizations who are successfully implementing the types of things that you're suggesting here?
1: Well, I mean, I'm going to be biased about Fastly, so I'll use an example that's not Fastly, but um, I think Sneak, who I've spoken at their conference partly because I think they've done something great, which is um, putting the results of those kind of security scans in line with the pull request in GitHub. So again, the developer doesn't have to leave their local context. They can just see the results of the scan there. They don't have to kind of go into this separate tooling. So I think that's kind of, um, you know, and they've been pretty wildly successful, I would say, even among developers. I think developers are a curmudgeon bunch. Um, I think there's some kinship there where, you know, if they don't really? hate it... Really? Yeah, right. If they don't hate the tool, in some ways that's a victory. And I have certainly heard with Steak, um, they don't <laughs> hate the tool. So I think that's a good sign.
2: Yeah. What about from the user's point of view? I mean, if we look towards the future, what their experience might be like in this sort of scenario, what do you imagine?
1: In some ways, we want to abstract the security problems away for them, which again is is can potentially be a daunting task. But instead of things like, um, you know, kind of having security bottlenecks and approvals, make them buy into it. So I, I heard of a, an email um, security company recently. I don't know if I'm supposed to mention brand names, but um, <laughs> so I'll just say there's a there's an email security company that I know um, introduced a workflow where. If even one user in the whole organization sees a phishing email, they can report it and then it's automatically kind of like protected cost of the population rather than requiring, you know, open a ticket and all that kind of tedious mm-hmm. stuff. But then cleverly, you can, I believe you can generate a alert in Slack that basically says, thank you user for like reporting that and saving the company. Um, And I think those kind of tricks where if we can empower users to kind of feel like the heroes for just taking a little more time, if they decide to be philosophers, reward them, right? Because they've done something great rather than assuming that's the default, assume they're just going to be doing their work and then like incentivize um, that kind of effort. Trigger the
2: happy part of their lizard brain.
1: Exactly. Yes. (laughs) And the great thing is, um, and one thing we mentioned in the talk is um, what's really powerful. I think most people have had the experience of like, you're like driving to work or something and then you get there and you're like, oh my God, I don't remember any of my drive here it's automatic the first time though you had to get there uh was in charge because it was like step by step like okay i gotta make this turn and then this one so after repetition and practice eventually those velociraptor kind of thinky thinky processes become lizard brain instincts as much as we can kind of encourage that we incentivize the first couple steps where they have to do that thinky thinky and then it becomes automatic that's great but I think, again, we need to assume as the default that we don't want the users to care. We don't want them to think about it. Um, in some sense, they want security to get out of the way. It's not like they don't care about security. It's just no one is really getting their bonuses or getting promoted when, you know, they're a developer, they're a marketing coordinator in procurement. They're not getting rewarded for doing security and I think it's unlike we can change uh, bonus schemes to be in the favor of security. So instead, we just have to make sure they can do their jobs. We do the hard work of setting everything up and setting the systems up. So if they do click on a phishing link, it's not the end of the world because they don't feel great when they do that. We don't feel great. And it's worth the upfront effort again. But that is... Velociraptor cares about uh, later land, as we called it in the talk. Lizard brain's like, no, nah, I'm just thinking about myself in the present. So mm. it does take in a bit moment. of <laughs> exactly, it does take a bit of thinky thinky um, for us to make the decision of like, okay, we're going to put in that upfront effort to save ourselves all that pain during incidents and reduce those incidents as a result. In
2: general, would you say that um, the folks who are developing these tools, the
1: developers in general, are they more lizard brain or velociraptor dominant? Every human's more lizard brain dominant. Um, okay. That's just how we're designed as a species. Um, that's part of the reason why we love, you know, like sweet and salty snacks and like immediate rewards and, you know, yeah. all the stuff, the shiny stuff we see at the conference. Right. I think the key thing, there's this kind of um, unfortunate feedback loop in the industry where uh, people designing security tools have to satisfy the requirements of their customers. So that's the security teams. Security teams still have their lizard brain mindset of like, oh my gosh, everything's a threat. We're vulnerable. We have to protect it at all costs. And you know, as I say, like they don't really care if like the money printer stops going like, brrr, like they're fine if it shuts down, if it means it's secure. It's obviously the business disagrees, but that means that if you're developing tool and you want to succeed for the most part, you have to cater to those requirements. And then, of course, the customers see more of the chatter about like eliminate all threats, like prevent everything, which is not, again, that's lizard brain sort of framing. So this kind of like symbiosis around like, okay, stop everything at all costs and don't think about how to make things easy, fast, and simple for users. Like just have those like really annoying bolt-ons for everyone else. Save yourself some work up front, even though maybe down the line during the incident it's going to be extra messy. It's really unfortunate. Of course, um, I know we're, we're talking more about the talk today, but my co-author Aaron Reinhardt and I are trying to change that with security chaos engineering and start to hopefully make um, more of that velociraptor and you know longer-term thinky thinky more automatic through um, a set of kind of principles and practices. I think the key thing is whether you acknowledge it or not, the lizard brain is active in your users and your colleagues and in yourself. Uh, Everyone can be kind of like a fool when you think about it and I mean that very endearingly. I can as well. My lizard brain is active all the time. (laughs) A friend who
2: said nothing is foolproof for a talented fool.
1: Exactly, yes. (laughs) Um, So I think the key thing is you have to assume the lizard brain is the default in yourself and in everyone else and have compassion for that. Work with the lizard brain rather than trying to restrict it. Like you're... Honestly, a lot of security programs are trying to fight against just straight-up evolution, and it's kind of like looking into the sun. You're never going to win that fight, right?
0: Joe, what do you think? You know what's weird, Dave? Hmm. I just started reading a book called uh, Misbehaving the Making of Behavioral Economics by Richard Thaler. Huh. I just checked that out of the library last week and started reading it. All right. Uh, Thaler won the Nobel Prize in economics in 2017 for basically starting the field of behavioral economics. So let me explain to you the idea of behavioral economics. Okay. Now, for the brief time that I was an economics major in high school or college,
2: rather. <laughs> I was going to say, having read this book, you are a- a- as much of an expert as Kelly.
0: Right. No. I'm, <laughs> I'm sure Kelly is – Kelly is, uh, but I'm always fascinated by books by economists. For some reason, yeah. I, I love them. I tear through them. Like the Freakonomics books, I love those. Okay. Okay. Um, the key point here is that traditionally economics was based on the idea that people were rational beings who would make their, their optimal decisions for their best outcomes.
2: Mm-hmm. What an adorable idea. Right,
0: exactly. <laughs> and behavioral <laughs> economics says, no, no, we need more realistic yeah. uh, expectations of people. Uh-huh. Uh, so people – I'm, I'm not advocating against free markets and open economic systems, but people will make decisions based on – incomplete information and emotion and other psychological factors. Sure. Right? So that's that's the key understanding of behavioral economics. And the book is is pretty interesting. I'm, I'm, I've just started it. I'm not very far through it yet. Okay. But, so I can't, I can't talk about it yeah. too much. But I, I wanted to give the listeners some background on what the idea of behavioral economics is. Mm-hmm. I like the way she talks about the cognitive processes in such – uh, endearing terms, I'll say. Yeah, uh, lizard brain and, and velociraptor brain, and thinky thinky. Yeah, right? that's yeah. that's one of my favorite things because that means it, thinking about things can be exhausting. It takes energy, mm. uh, and when we when we are working through a process, we're often not thinking about that process. We're doing it, mm-hmm. right? Uh, unless you're doing some kind of creative process. Which you know, I actually I haven't done a lot of coding recently, but I remember when I was doing coding, I'd come home from work and I'd be like mentally exhausted, mm-hmm. very very hard because I'd spent my entire day thinking about a problem and, and solving it. Yeah. So I like the way she talks about these different different aspects of of what goes on inside of our brain. Yeah. Uh, and I want to touch on that a little bit more because. When I'm giving talks, uh, I've started – there's a talk I'm giving right now and, uh, about – or I've given recently about how the social engineering plays on our, our base instincts, the things that make us human. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you have to be able to recognize that pattern of the social engineering attack in order to be good at, at understanding what's going on. Hmm. Uh, I like her idea of question folk wisdom. Yeah, a good And she cites the example of stock prices are negatively impacted by breaches. When stock prices are negatively impacted by breaches, that impact is very brief. Yeah. And we don't see a lot of long-term impact from st- uh, in stock prices from breaches. And we don't see a lot of consumer behavior. Do you still shop at Target? Oh, do I still shop at <laughs> <Right>? Target? <laughs> do you even bear any animosity Please. towards Target for giving up your credit card There's a
2: red velvet rope for me at Target. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: Kelly makes an excellent point here that people don't necessarily need the long explanations, but they rather need sound bites to remember things. Mm-hmm. The, the, the subtext here is that people already want to do the right thing. And she actually says that later in the interview. Uh, they just need a way to remember it, to put it into their lizard brain, yeah. if you will. Yeah. Um, she spends a great deal of time talking about the uh, one of the fundamental problems of InfoSec, uh, the emotional triggers that are the same Triggers that marketing and sales use. Hmm. I have another thing I talk about in uh, my social engineering talks, my my um, security awareness talks. I call it the the social engineering one two punch, right? Which is you have a problem, I have the solution, mm. and we see that a lot in the scams. Like uh, there's an arrest warrant out for you, but if you pay me five hundred bucks, it'll go away.
2: Right? It's right. it's that
0: kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But she makes an excellent point. That is the same thing that legitimate companies do. When they're marketing their products. Think back to Steve Jobs when he said, you have all this digital music and no way to transport it. Right. Here's an iPod. Right. And people went nuts for it. Mm-hmm. They ha- You're right. Here, you. I have a problem I didn't even know I had,
2: <laughs> Steve Jobs. I've been carrying around all these CDs like an animal. Right. Like a caveman. <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> I. I do – I do have a disagreement with Kelly, and I would love to discuss it with her at some point in time. And it and I, I it's not a, not a big disagreement, but she says there's that we're pushing a lot of this responsibility for human uh, for the human part of the problem down to the individual contributors. Yeah, on the pro uh, in the process, mm-hmm. um, and her point is that's not the way to go. And it, her. Reasoning behind that is sound, that, that we're asking too much of busy people. Mm-hmm. Productivity is based on, uh, is reduced, and bonuses, bonuses come from being productive, not being more secure. Right. Um, and so I, I can't disagree with that at all. Yeah. Uh, but I still think there is an individual responsibility for security awareness, and I think there needs to be a, a change in organization or organizational psychology change that makes that part of the culture. Mm. That we have to do things securely, and we have to recognize these patterns. and I don't think i i I am optimistic here about there being some way for us to make people better at recognizing when uh, when they're being targeted by a social engineering attack. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that once we get people to recognize that and and to Kelly's point at the lower level of of our brain, you know at, at more ingrained in our neuropathways – pathways. Once we get people to recognize that, that we will be a lot more successful. Yeah, and I think that using her point of giving people short little things to remember is a, is a great step in getting there. Yeah. So I think I think this is a great interview. I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm sorry I didn't see the talk at RSA. I didn't get to go to RSA. Mm-hmm. I'm going to look to see if it's available. I want to see her talk.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. They usually have those uh, on the RSA conference website. So definitely worth a look. Uh, as you can probably tell, I really enjoyed this conversation. Right. Uh, really compelling stuff, and uh, kind of to me, it was a sort of a fresh, fresh approach, new energy to this problem. Made, she made me think about things in ways I hadn't really considered before. And that's yeah, I think
0: I think she's a luminary in the field. I think she's yeah. going to be uh, hopefully making positive changes. Yeah. So again,
2: our thanks to Kelly Shortridge for joining us. We do appreciate her taking the time.